0: Speaking here of the unique ministry that he was given, not only as the apostle to the Gentiles, but as the one to whom the revelation of the mystery of church age, truth, was given. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. I just want to make three or four quick points following the rapture of the church. We're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account. So you might just want to jot down these few simple little points from this passage. Number one, the foundation stands sure. That foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him is unshakable and immovable. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are created a new creature in Him, uh, that is never going to change. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to damage uh, your position in Jesus Christ because the foundation is sure. Secondly, the Christian life is a choice. The Christian life is a choice whether we will build with gold, silver, and precious stones or whether we will build with wood, hay, and straw. It's very important to understand here the issue is not between good and sin. The issue here is between good and good. What do I mean by that? I mean divine good versus human good. All sin was paid for at the cross. All sin has been forever removed. It will never be brought up. It will never be an issue. You're not going to get to the Bema and have Jesus pull up the big screen and start showing all of your sins so that you'll be embarrassed in front of the whole company of the saints throughout the entire church age. That's often taught. Uh, It's used as a scare tactic. It's not going to happen. The sin issue was solved at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, The issue of sin for all who believe is finished and done. So then what is the issue? The gold, silver, and precious stones is divine good produced by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. The wood, hay, and straw is referring to those things that we do out of our own ego, our own pride, our own arrogance, but it's production of the flesh. Those things are going to be burned. I'm sure there will be many sermons of many pastors that we thought were really great and we really hit them and and we really wowed the crowd and God's going to say, no, that was all for your own self-promotion and your own arrogance. That's not going to count. So wood, hay, and straw is referring to things that are done in our own flesh apart from the power of God, the Holy Spirit. He then says, each man's work is going to become evident. The day will show it. It is to be re- revealed by fire. The beam of seat is a good thing. And it's a good thing not just because God will be faithful to <clears throat> reward all acts done in faith and obedience to his word. It's a good thing because we don't want to drag our human good into eternity. We are going to be relieved at the moment of the rapture of our sin nature we're going to be relieved of all human good at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. I just can't keep this thing from closing in on my lips there. All right. So, I hope that it's clear that uh, the removal of human good at the Bema Seat uh, is uh, a wonderful thing uh, that we're going to experience. I'm sure there are going to be tears. I'm sure we're going to have regret, uh, possibly, over things that we could have done well that we didn't do well, things that we might have done in faithfulness uh, that we did instead in uh, self-effort and uh, for our own recognition. You know, the idea that Jesus brought up, and by the way, he introduced reward. I would encourage you, as you read in the Sermon on the Mount... I think Jesus refers to reward six or seven times. Uh, he said things like When you pray, don't stand on the street corner so that everyone can see you and praise you. Pray in private, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What is he saying? It's not the issue of what you're doing, it's the issue of why you're doing it. What is the motive behind it? If we're doing it for self promotion and praise of ourself. It's not going to receive the reward. When you give, don't give openly so that everyone sees it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And by the way, I may as well throw this in. The Christian church is filled today with fruit inspectors. Everybody wants to run around evaluating your life. And they want to say, well, I don't see fruit in your life. And if anyone ever says that to you, I have a biblical answer for you to give them. That's because I was commanded to hide it. I was commanded to hide my prayer life. I was commanded to hide my giving. I was commanded to hide many things. And obviously, if we're growing, it's going to be evident in our life. But the point is, we're not doing it to be seen. So if someone ever comes to you and says, well, I'm just not seeing the fruit in your life I think I should see, just tell them Jesus told me to hide it. He'll point it out when we get to the bema. A third point that I'll bring out, in verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, let's assume that we have a believer who trusted in Jesus Christ, lived his or her entire life and never produced anything of divine fruit. If their work is burned up, he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And that is not referring to purgatory. That is not referring to some period of suffering, and it certainly is not referring to the false doctrine of the outer darkness, which, by the way, you have the doctrine of the false doctrine of outer darkness in your notes, and I'll probably touch on it shortly Uh, But it is a false teaching that's going around that if you're not a super Christian, if you're not one of the elite Christians, if you're not a really good Christian, you're not going to enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb, you're not going to enjoy the kingdom, you're going to be out there somewhere in outer darkness. So the idea is between the kingdom or heaven and hell, there's a no man's land and that's where bad Christians go. It's a complete false doctrine based on some of the most atrocious uh, error in hermeneutics and exegesis that I've ever seen. So don't fall for that. Uh, It is a complete false doctrine. Uh, In your notes on page 7, you have the doctrine of the mystery. The tragedy of the mystery is that it remains a mystery to most Christians. The mystery, of course, refers to the church age and the doctrines relevant to the church age. These were primarily revealed to the Apostle Paul. And you can look at passages like Romans 16, 25 and 26, Ephesians 3, 1 through 12, Colossians 1, 24 to 27, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, and they will help you a lot. But you have seven points of the doctrine of the mystery. I would encourage you to study those on page 8 you have the doctrine of intercalation. Not only has the mystery remained a mystery, but most Christians don't understand even uh, the basics of what intercalation means. Intercalation in simple terms means inserting one thing between two other things. You know, it's kind of like making a sandwich. If you have a sandwich with two pieces of bread and nothing in between, it's kind of boring, right? You want to slip a little ham and cheese or something in there. If you were to insert a day between Tuesday and Wednesday, that would be an intercalation. You and I can't do it. God is able to do it. And in fact, he has done it. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, a new age was inserted into the age of Israel. And Daniel, very interesting in Daniel, I may as well use the... Picture board here. Daniel 9, see if I can get something a little bolder. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, takes us from 445 BC, the command to rebuild Jerusalem up to the cross. That's 69 weeks of the 70 weeks. And then it picks up with the beginning of the tribulation period. What happens in between? Why did he skip that passage? Because it hadn't been revealed yet. It was a mystery. God inserted with the coming of the Holy Spirit the church age, into the flow of the history of the nation of Israel. And as I pointed out last night, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles is the rapture of the church, and when that happens... Israel comes back on the scene. That makes sense? That's an intercalation. You have that in your notes. Study through that. I'd love to go through the points with you, but we just simply don't have time. On page 9, you have the doctrine of eternal rewards. By the way, can I remind you, I did this in five days. I looked up every verse of all the verses that you have to make sure it was accurate. Don't get mad at me if I copied them down. Sometimes I'll look at 1 Corinthians 3 something, and then when I'm doing my notes, I'll slip and say 2 Corinthians, so don't get upset if I fail in that regard. All right. I'm going to try to give us a little bit of time for questions and answers, maybe uh, in this or the next section. I might be able to do it in this session. Uh, We are going to turn to page 10. The third study is the tribulation period. We're now ready to go into the final seven years of the history of the nation of Israel. And this takes us back to the passage we began with, Matthew 24. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew 24. This passage is so beautiful. And I mentioned to you last night, the little word then is a time word and it's very, very important. As a matter of fact, it's absolutely critical to understanding Matthew 24. And here we have the Lord Jesus answering the disciples' question about the end of the age and the sign of His coming. And so we pick up in verse 9. We saw last night in verses 4 through 8, the birth pangs. We are in birth pang territory right now. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, so on and so forth. By the way, it's very interesting there is a new fissure, a new uh, crack in the earth that they found off the coast of the uh, Northwest, uh, Washington, Oregon, Northern California. They didn't know that it was there. It's 600 miles long. It has a massive chasm in it that goes down into the earth that they believe is releasing pressure on the tectonic plates. And when enough pressure is released, they're predicting up to a category nine earthquake. That's huge. Remember, every time you go up one in the Richter scale, you're actually increasing the force by a thousand times. It's exponential, so it's huge. At the same time, there's a uh, volcano. Earthquakes and volcanoes always work together. There's a volcano in Colombia. Uh, We have relatives down there, by the way. And uh, it is about to blow. The last time it blew, it it buried 25,000 people. So all of the things that the Lord Jesus told us are going to happen are happening right now. But now we're moving beyond birth pangs. We're moving beyond the rapture of the church. You can insert the rapture of the church between Matthew 24, verse 8 and verse 9. All right. And I'm going to maybe jot a few things up here for you. So I'll clean this off. Verse 9, then, this then, here's the rapture, begins the tribulation period. Verse 9, notice what he says, just follow his outline. Then they will deliver you to what? Tribulation. We know that the tribulation period is broken in half. Verse 9 introduces us to the first half. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. What's it going to be like? They will kill you and you will be hated. Who is he talking to? Specifically directed to Jewish believers. Right? He's talking to the disciples, but the you will include those who are believers at that time. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. We could almost see that coming, couldn't we, in the last three years? How many families have been divided just over the issues that have been raised in society over the last three years? You know, if one part of the family, there's this thing at If one part of the family won't go anywhere without a mask and you refuse to wear a mask, the part of the family that wants to wear a mask hates the part of the family that does, I mean, over something as stupid as a mask. And they've proven that viruses are 50 times smaller than the smallest gap in those masks. In other words, trying to stop a virus with a mask is like trying to stop a mosquito with a chain-link fence. But it's divided families. How tragic. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise. You think it's bad now? Just wait. We're going to see. We'll be watching from the balcony. False prophets will be everywhere and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. We're going to see shortly... Uh, that this is going to lead to anarchy and violence like the world has never seen. Verse 13 is very important. We need to keep our verses in context. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Calvinists will tell you that this proves the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If you don't hold out to the end, if you don't stay faithful to the end, you're not going to be saved. Whenever you see the word saved in the Bible, ask yourself the question, what is he talking about being saved from? The word saved is used five times in the book of James, and it's never used in James of eternal salvation. James is writing to people who are already believers. He's talking to people who already have eternal life. He he sets the stage for his entire Uh, epistle in the first chapter in verse 21 or 22 when he says lay aside all wickedness and the overflow of evil and receive the word implanted only the Holy Spirit can implant the word in your soul you can sit there and listen to it until you're blue in the face but if the spirit of God is not in control in your life it's not going to get planted in your soul It has to be received, and it's received by faith. And therefore, he says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about deliverance in time. Deliverance from the world that is out there. Deliverance from the deception. And the whole book of James goes through with that same idea. So, he who endures to the end of what? Would you go back with me to verse 3? What will be the sign of your coming and the what? And of the age. And then Jesus begins talking to them about the birth pangs that are going to come. And he tells them that this is not yet the end. Verse 6. And then we come down to verse 13 and he says the one who endures to the end. What's he talking about? If you manage as a believer to make it through the tribulation to that point, you're going to get delivered because Christ is going to return and you'll survive as some will survive. There will be few, but some will survive through the tribulation to go into the kingdom. If you can hack it, if you can endure, if you can make it through to the end, you're going to be delivered. If not, you're going to find yourself where we'll see in Revelation chapter 6, many, many martyrs. There are only two ways believers make it through the tribulation. They survive all of the hardships, violence, and brutality, and they make it to the end or they get beheaded. That's one reason, as I left off last night, you and I should be witnessing to all our friends, neighbors, and loved ones. Because if they don't trust Christ now, you say, well, maybe they'll trust in the tribulation. Yeah, but they'll probably get beheaded for it. All right, now notice. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then, what? The end Fourth time it's been mentioned since we started in verse 3. Then the end will come. End of what? End of the tribulation period. What has he just done? He has just bracketed for us the first half of the tribulation, the whole tribulation. And now he says, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand. How are we going to understand? We'll go back and study the book of Daniel when he talks about the coming of Antichrist. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation happens in the middle of the tribulation. What is it? Well, we looked at it last night. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Antichrist takes his place in the temple of God, presenting himself as if he is God, and anyone who will not worship him is going to be put to death. And that's going to be the time when Jesus said, it's time to flee to the mountains, flee to the wilderness, and uh, escape, if you can, before the violence falls. Verse 16, then... Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Whoever is in the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Why? Because you're going to need every second you have to just get away. Don't delay a minute. Doesn't apply to you and I. We don't have to run to the mountains. I ran into a group that was using this passage for you know, survivalist preparation. We're supposed to run to the mountains. No, if you notice carefully, little words are important. Let those who are in Judea. I don't know about you, but I don't think we're in Judea here. I think we're in Pennsylvania. And our home is in Arizona, and I don't read either of those in this passage. Verse 20, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Why? Well, if it's the Sabbath, you're not supposed to be going beyond a kilometer, essentially. And in the winter, it's going to be cold and it's going to be difficult. And woe to those who are pregnant and those that are nursing babies because it's hard to run when you're dragging a kid. Make sense? In other words, what the Lord's trying to impress on them and on us is the fact that this is going to be a time when you're going to need every second you can to survive. If you're going to endure to the end, you are going to have to instantly and immediately begin fleeing from Judea and Jerusalem. By the way, why would it matter if it's on the Sabbath? Because we're back under the Jewish economy. This is the end of the age of the law. Not the church age. Verse 21 Then, I told you the little word then is very important, for then there will be, here we go, great tribulation. He just gave us an outline. The outline is birth pangs, then tribulation, then abomination of desolation, then great tribulation. Is that really difficult to uh, understand? I think it's about as simple as it could get. Then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Take all of the disasters, all of the horrors that we read of in history, put all of them together, and they won't compare to the last. How long does this last? Well, we know from Daniel, seven years. It's a week of years. Divide it in half, and therefore you have three and a half, and three and a half, divided by the abomination of desolation and the uh, claim of Antichrist that he is God in the temple. Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. Without the second coming of Jesus Christ, mankind would not an- annihilate themselves. There would be nobody left. <clears throat> so if you look on your notes, you see the division there of tribulation Its characteristics, the mid-tribulation with the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in Daniel 11.31. And of course, Paul refers to it in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 10. And then you have the last three and a half years. How do we know we divide it exactly into three and a half years? Well, if you look at the top of your outline there, Daniel's week is divided by time, times and a half time. If you take one time and two times and a half time, how many times have you got? You've got three and a half. If you take 42 months, as in Revelation 11, 2, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years. If you take 1260 days, as in Revelation 11, 3 and 12, 6, how much time do you have? I mean, it's the Bible makes it so simple, and yet there are people that just don't get it. Three and a half years, three and a half years. If you take three and a half and add three and a half, I was never good in math, but I think it comes up to seven. Just a guess, but I think so. Now, Paul places the tribulation for us, but this falls under passages that we looked at last night, so I'm not going to turn back to those passages 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, you remember he talks about the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a designation for the entire tribulation period and actually goes on to include the millennial reign, but we're not dealing with that at this point. He tells us that God did not appoint us to wrath. Wrath, like day of the Lord, is one of the Old Testament designations for the tribulation period. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that he delivers us from the coming wrath. It's a reference to the tribulation period. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 12, the tribulation is going to follow uh, the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him and the removal of the restrainer. So when we put the passages together, once again, last night I made the point We need to get back to categorical teaching. We need to get back to looking at more than one passage at a time. I know that all the great uh, preaching experts and scholars tell you you should never deal with more than one passage at a time. If you never deal with more than one passage at a time, you never know how passages fit together. You're never going to be able to see the jigsaw puzzle Put together because last week you looked at Ephesians 6 and this week you're looking at maybe Revelation 12 and you've already lost the connection between the two. So when we bring them all together, if we take many passages, I'd like to say all passages, but some doctrines actually require, you know, you'd, you'd be uh, in the study for months if not years because there are so many passages the deal with it, but let's at least pull enough of the clear passages together. And here's what happens. When you see that several passages deal with a topic and they all come out agreeing on that topic, you have a pretty clear picture of what's going on. As we looked last night at a number of passages that made it very, very clear that the rapture must precede the tribulation period. I know that there are people that like to use scare tactics. If... You aren't a faithful believer if you're involved in sin. When Jesus comes, you're going to get left behind and go through the tribulation. How would you answer that charge or that suggestion? It's very simple. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we're going to live together with him. Why? Because he is faithful. It answers the question and puts it to rest. So... Very important for us to pull some of these passages together. I want you now to turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, because John does something wonderful for us. In Revelation chapter 6, he gives us an overview of the tribulation period. Before he gets into the rest of the book of Revelation, he starts at the beginning and works his way through the tribulation period. Get in your mind once again the context, chapter 4 and 5, we have the scene in heaven. We have the Lord Jesus Christ revealed as the only one who is able to open the seals. The seven seals is basically the title deed to human history, and we have twice uh, songs being sung. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then you drop down to verse eleven. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of you, will they, uh, because of your will, they existed and were created. And then you drop down to chapter five and verse nine. Worthy are you. This is being sung to the Lord Jesus Christ to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, you have made, unfortunately, it says here, them. This is the new American standard. It is actually, you have made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. And you drop down again to verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might, honor, glory, and blessing. And then down to verse 13, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So we've got the church essentially in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Rapture of the church, Revelation 4.1. The command, come up here. I gave you four or five reasons why that relates to the rapture of the church last night. That brings us to what happens when the church is gone. Well, John is going to do as any good Hebrew would do. They like to tell you what they're going to teach you. Then they teach you what they're going to teach you. And then they tell you why they taught you what they taught you. That's just typical Hebrew thinking. He's going to give us a preamble. And the preamble is going to look at the big picture. And I want to explain the importance of this. Too many times, and those of us who are pastors love to do this. We like to look at the word. We want to find out what does that exact word and how many ways can we break that word down and what are all the nuances of the form of the verb or whatever the word may be. And, you know, we keep zeroing in with a microscope and the problem is if you look through a microscope before you look through the telescope, you don't know where you are. There are three ways that you and I today in the modern world can see the world around us. Number one, we can look through a telescope. We look through a telescope, we can see the universe, we can see the planets, we can see the movement of the heavenly bodies, we can see all kinds of things. That is the big, big picture. And then we can go all the way from the telescope down to the microscope, and we can see the atom. Now, we can see bacteria. We can see things that you would never see with your own eyes. You can't live with either of those perspectives. Just imagine if suddenly your vision was telescopic. You'd be walking around going, wow, Jupiter has nine moons or whatever. But you'd be running into walls and falling over things on the ground, right? You couldn't live. You'd be non-functional. Imagine for a moment if your eyes were microscopic. All of a sudden, you can look at anything and you're seeing germs and bacteria or maybe even something more powerful. You're looking at someone and seeing their DNA. You couldn't live that way. So the telescope's great, the microscope's great, but then there is common vision. And common vision gives us the ability to synthesize those two things and bring them together with an understanding in the world in which we live. That's what John's going to do for us in Revelation chapter 6. He's going to give us a very quick view what will the tribulation be like. Notice it begins... In Revelation 6, 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Some of your translations will say, come and see. People argue back and forth. Is he saying, come to the horseman? Or is he saying, come to John to come and see? Well, both of them are happening, so I'm not going to argue that point. Verse 2. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is Antichrist. What's going to happen immediately after the rapture of the church? Now there may be a period, a short period of adjustment, adaptation, I don't know. There may be a a little sequence of time between the rapture of the church, but it's not going to be long. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. By the way, the Muslims read that passage and say that that is their imam. They read your Bible, they read my Bible, and they see in it exactly the opposite of what we see. Do you know why? Because when he comes, they're going to think he is their imam. You'll notice something that's different, uh, uh, missing here. What's missing in verse 2? He's on a white horse. In the ancient world, there were two ways a king would come to a, a city or a village. He would come on a donkey or he would come on a white horse. Remind you of something? What we call the triumphal entry? When Jesus came, he came on the donkey. Why? Because that was a sign of peace. If the king came on a white charger, bad news, he's coming to inflict punishment or to overthrow your city. So the idea here of the white horse, I mean, we even use this, don't we? Roy Rogers, whose real name was Leonard Sly. Leonard Sly. You all remember Leonard Sly? Leonard Sly, Roy Rogers, had a horse, and this horse's name was, and what color was Trigger? Trigger. I every kid that ever grew up with Roy Rogers knew that if you're the hero, you come on a white horse, right? It started a long time ago. I looked and behold a white horse, and he that sat on it had a bow. Now I'm a deer hunter and I love archery hunting, but I know one thing. If I go out in the woods with nothing but a bow, I'm not getting a deer. You need something with the bow. By the way, I just performed a wedding for a beautiful young couple down in Texas and I gave them the symbol of the bow as a symbol of how the husband and the wife are to work together. It's from an old poem from Hiawatha, from Longfellow. As under the bow the string is... So unto the man is the woman, though she draws him, yet she follows him, though she leads him, yet she obeys him, each of them worthless without the other. I may not have quoted that exactly the way it's written, but it's close enough that you get the idea a bow and a string work together, right? What good is a bow without an arrow? Now, one of the key elements, and Paul relies on this quite a bit, Uh, Because he often will look at passages and pull out of Old Testament passages things that we didn't even see. And that's because rabbis were taught, don't just look for what's there, look for what's not there. If there's something conspicuously missing in the passage, it's very important. And what's conspicuously missing here is an arrow. So if you're on a white charger and you're setting off across the world and you've got a great bow, which is long range conquest in the ancient world, but you have no arrow, how are you going to conquer? Well, if a king comes on the white charger with the bow and no arrows, you know one thing. He's not going to hurt you. He's going to conquer through peace. We saw that, didn't we, last night in First Thessalonians chapter 5? When they say peace and safety, what's going to happen? Sudden destruction will come on them and they will not escape. All of the scripture fits together. So, first phase, the coming of Antichrist. Jesus opens the second seal, verse 3, When he broke the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. To him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. The second writer is the follow-up of the phony piece of Antichrist. He is going to lead the world into anarchy, violence, and bloodshed like the world has never seen. This is going to make the time of the French Revolution look like a Sunday school picnic. It's going to be a horrible, horrible time. By the way, the United States, uh, who's the uh, historian, Victor Davis Hansen? Victor Davis Hansen just wrote an article on where the United States is heavy, heading, uh, and his conclusion is exactly the same as what we have here in this passage. We are heading to a time that's going to make the French Revolution look mild. And why is that? Because we're so divided as a nation. Hatred, hostility, animosity, a grievance, everything that you can imagine has been systematically and intentionally fed into the minds of this people. And, you know, who do you align with? Who do you not unite with? This is why local churches are so important. You know what, your most important preparation, and I'm laying aside your inner spiritual preparation, what is the most important preparation you can make for what's coming? You better have a community. You better have friends that you can count on. You better have people who are willing to help each other. You better not make yourself an alien to your own local church because. Having the ability to rely, and Nan and I see this all the time, people all around the world survive things you wouldn't think they could ever survive, and they do it because they are a Christian community, and they depend on each other, they rely on each other, they trust each other, they help each other, they support each other, and that's more important than all of the stockpiles of anything that you could lay up. Well, I would encourage you... Don't just depend on being a part of the community to help you. Make yourself a part of the community that helps others. Get in your local church and be active as a member of that local church. I'm so thankful for the local church that the Lord has led us to in Prescott because I have honestly never seen a local church that had so many people so eager to help out. And the ones who lead the way are all the leadership. The leadership team is always the ones who are doing work and then other people are just funneling in and saying, where can we help? How can I help? Can I just move chairs? Can I sweep the floor? Can I just do this? It's absolutely amazing because I've been in a few local churches through the years, you know. And I know how it's very easy for people to say, well, what can I do? Can I teach? Can I lead? Well, how about you clean the toilets? Oh no, that's below me. And I've always felt like the best way to find the place that God has for you is start at the bottom and be faithful at the bottom and work your way up and you will see that God will raise you up to the position where he wants you to be and you'll be very comfortable and very happy. To come to a local church, to feed on the word of God, to feed on the faithful labor of a pastor, to feed on the hard work of other people and offer nothing back, is an absolute disgrace to the grace of God. Don't be that kind of person. Be involved, be active, be supportive in every way you can. I'm going to have to hurry because time's almost up and I have to get through the tribulation. Violence, bloodshed is the red horse. And then we read in verse 7, The lamb broke the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked. Behold, an ashen horse. Did I I miss the famine, didn't I? Let's go back to verse 5. I don't want you to miss out on the famine. Some of us could really use some famine once in a while. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he that sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley, four denarius do not damage the oil and the wine. The idea here is that there are going to be some people who are going to be starving and there are going to be the elites that are going to be overindulging. Very close to what we see in many places today. There are going to be those who are going to have uh, the richest of provisions, the oil and the wine, There are going to be those who are going to be putting in a day's work for enough to feed one person. You think that if you worked all day long and you had enough to buy yourself one burger, that's it. What if you have a wife and three children? Your day's work is not going to feed your family. Can you see that we're moving in that direction? Do you know that our illustrious administration has just hired 80,000 IRS agents to make sure, and by the way, they're going to be armed? Uh, the idea is either you pay us uh, up to a third or half of your income, or we might kill you. That's where we're heading. That's how bad the world is, but we're not here yet. This is only events that are moving in that direction. Famine. Have you ever seen people hungry? I've seen hunger. I've seen hunger like you can't imagine. I sat on a, I'm going to take five extra minutes here to tell you what hunger looks like. I saw a little boy with a leaf in his hand with a rice ball. When you're in India on the street, you can buy a leaf with a rice ball on it and that rice ball will be your meal. It's about that big around, about the size of a golf ball. That's your meal. This little boy sat on a bench in Vishakhapatnam, India, on the at the railroad station, and he ate his little rice ball. That was his meal. He dropped a few grains of rice. When he got up and walked away, a woman that was more haggard than any woman I have ever seen, tangled hair, absolutely filthy, covered with rags, immediately rushed over, bent down, picked up the grains that she could pick up and put in her mouth. She was that hungry that four or five or six grains of rice was something that she was desperate for. She walked away, an old man that looked like an absolute scarecrow, rushed over, grabbed the leaf that had the grease from the rice and stuffed it in his mouth and ate it. And when he walked away, two ravens came in and picked up the last two crumbs. That's hunger. That's famine. There's a lot of it around the world. If time goes on, you're going to see it in your country. All of the things that are happening are being done intentionally. This country could be the richest country on the planet. We should have the best roads, the best bridges, the best buildings on the planet. We have just thrown away $100 billion to Ukraine, none of which has gotten to the people. Those people are not being helped. $100 billion, and now we're moving into the $200 billion area. And by the way, are they winning? No, they're not winning. Tragically, if what we hear is true, we already have troops on the ground. We are looking at a war with Russia. we're talking about World War III. Future doesn't look bright. Well, it all depends on how you look at it. Christ is coming again. He has a plan for our life. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God dwelling within us. Get depressed if you want to. I'm excited. I'm looking forward. These are the best days of our life. These are the greatest opportunities that we'll ever have to lead people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and to encourage fellow believers who are lost and wandering out there because they haven't kept their nose in the book and studied God's word and maybe their pastor has not been faithful to give them the pieces of the puzzle put together so they can look around and say, I know what's going on. What are the two things Jesus said in the birth pang period? Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. Guess what? If you're deceived, you're going to be afraid. You want to put it another way? Are you afraid? It's because you're deceived. The two go together. You wipe out the deception in your own mind and the deception in your understanding of the word. You are going to be fearless in the time in which we live. doesn't mean that... Fear is not going to come knocking on the door, but every time it does, you just boot it out with faith. On to the end of the tribulation. Sorry. So we have famine, and then we have death. Verse 7, The Lamb broke the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of fourth living creature, saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, a pale horse. He that sat on it had the name death, and Hades was falling with him. I don't know if they're writing... Double on the horse, or how that works. Authority was given to them over one-fourth of the earth. What has Bill Gates, Ted Turner, and uh, Klaus Schwab told us? They want to wipe out 90% of the world's population. This is the beginning. They're going to get their wish. I'm going to tell you the interesting thing. They're going to be the ones that die. They're going to get it. They're going to watch it happening as they are wiped out themselves. is given authority to kill with a sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. There's going to come a point where the animals of the world, your pet dog, is going to turn into a wolf. Not yours, because you won't be here. The animals of the earth are going to turn against mankind. Do you know why? From the creation of the world, God established a principle that man was subject to him and creation was subject to man. Man was put in dominion over the earth. And when man rebels against his ruler, the earth rebels against its ruler. And that's why every time you have mass immorality, mass rejection of truth, mass hedonism in the world, you always have something else. Earthquakes, volcanoes, storms famine. Crop failures, why? Earth rebels against its rebelling master, rebelling against the master in heaven. In the fifth seal, here's where the believers are going to come in. When the Lamb broke the sixth, uh, fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, had been completed as well. You know, I don't know about you, but the tribulation doesn't sound like a fun time to be alive. Most believers will die. Say, well, I'm going to leave a note on my fridge for my family. Well, that's great. I hope they believe afterwards. But you know what? Why not try to get them into the kingdom now? Why not be praying that God would break through the hardness of their heart, the blindness of their eyes, the distraction that they are under from this world, Breakthrough with the clarity of the light of the gospel of Christ. Now is the day. Paul says today is the day of salvation. He says that the time is short. The peril is near. The darkness is increasing. Now is the day of salvation. We need to impress that on friends, family, and relatives. Finally, the sixth seal is absolute terror. He broke the sick seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became blood. Remember in the disciples question when they said, what will be the sign of your coming? This is it. What coming are we talking about? Second advent. The stars in the sky fell to the earth. A fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island, every mountain and island were moved. This is right before the second coming. Then the kings of the earth and the great men, the guys like Klaus Schwab and George Soros and Bill Gates, Ted Turner, all the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him that sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know, I had a guy one time that told me I said, one day you're going to stand before the Lord and answer for your life. And he said, if he stands in front of me, I'm going to spit in his face. I said, I'll be watching and you won't be spitting in his face. You'll be terrified with a terror that you have never, ever imagined before. The great ones of the earth, you realize that the elites, whoever, wherever they are, you know what they're all doing now? They're not building underground bunkers. You know, like a tornado shelter. They're, they're building underground cities. I've seen videos of some of these places. They have movie theaters. They have generators. They have enough food, drink, wine, whatever all stockpiled for years and years. There are underground cities. They plan on creating a cataclysmic event on the earth, and then they're all going to run to their bunkers. And you know what's going to happen? At the second advent, they're going to be in their bunker, and they're going to see Jesus Christ coming in power and authority and glory. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to scream to their bunker to cave in on them and hide him from his face. But there's no hiding from the face of your creator. We can't hide now. They can't hide then. We are always under the eyes of him <clears throat> who searches the souls of men. He searches our soul every day. Let's make sure that what he finds is something he approves of. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your word. Father, we cry out even now for those <clears throat> who have sold themselves to Satan, those who have essentially devoted themselves to an agenda of evil, Father, those who are in positions of great power, Christ died for these people. We pray even now that those who consider themselves the elites, those who consider themselves above the law, those who think that they are uh, at the top of the food chain, Father, some of them may still come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ loved them. Christ died for them. Salvation's available. We pray that before it's eternally too late, that even they will humble themselves and open their heart and receive the light of the gospel of Christ. Let this be true and let us see it happen, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.